is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education, bringing you another exciting episode. And before we get started, we're going to have a conversation in a moment with Dr. David Howe from Ontario, and he's going to talk about ableism and where disability fits within the adaptive physical activity world and his life story. With that, I wanted to briefly uh, also highlight a new opportunity that I uh, am excited to share with my listeners. So we recently were funded the OSEP K grant, the Office of Special Education Programs K grant, to fund approximately 35 adapted physical education master students at the University of New Hampshire over the next five years. Uh, the program is a one-year program and it's in person at UNH and it'll be directed under me. And I just wanted to briefly just put out there to please feel free to reach out to me my email is scott.mcnamara at unh.edu, and this funding provides full tuition, textbooks, partial living stipend, conference travel, and an APE national certification. So again, uh, just an exciting opportunity for you to consider and share. All right, now let's get to the conversation. Enjoy. I am sitting here, sitting here virtually, uh, just across the Canadian border with a renowned scholar, international scholar, not just because he's from Canada. Uh, and we have Dr. David Howe, who is from Western, is it Western University? Yes. University in Canada. I, I'm very excited to have you here. You were one of the keynote speakers in uh, at ISAPA, which we have talked about or touched on several times this last few months in this podcast. And I found your keynote around ableism and physical activity spaces to be really riveting and refreshing to hear in that space. And I want to just also introduce you as a Paralympian uh, that has represented your country several times, which I think is amazing, specifically winning. And I'm looking at your Wikipedia page. So I think you're the second person to have a Wikipedia page on this podcast that at least I've known about. So it looks like it won bronze in Seoul in 88 and in silver in Barcelona in 92. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I also went to um, Atlanta in 96 and Sydney in 2000. So I, I went to the, I was fortunate enough to go to the Paralympics uh, four times. That's, that's awesome. And we maybe, maybe we can kind of go back and forth on some of those uh, topics because um I know those things have influenced probably where you sit in our field of APA or outside of the field of APA. Um, so with that, why don't you provide a brief introduction of who you are and how you became interested in disability and physical activity? Um, well, I became, I, I was forced to become interested in it really because I'm born with a congenital impairment. Um, I have hemiplegia cerebral palsy, which uh, hemiplegia cerebral palsy affects one side of the body. Um, it affects my right side. Um, and so from about the age of two, um, it, my parents realized that there was something uh, wrong with me. And I put that in inverted commas because in the nature of disability studies, we might not see it as being wrong. But I didn't. I hadn't started to walk, so they took um, took me to Sick Kids Hospital, which is um, a children's hospital in in downtown Toronto, and I was assessed, and it 
it was determined that I had cerebral palsy and um, they wanted to do a serious operation with, they wanted to fuse my ankle. Um, my father happened to be an athletics coach, a track and field coach, and he didn't want them to fuse my ankle because I wouldn't be able to run. And as soon as my father raised this concern, they, um, the medical doctors suggested that I wouldn't have a normal life, that I wouldn't be physically active and so on and so forth. And that, um, obviously people in the podcast can't see me. I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. And, um, so I was born in, in, in the mid sixties and, um, the, the attitudes to, um, physical disability were, were a lot different than they are today, at least, at least in the Canadian context. And there was an expectation that I wouldn't be physically active in my my father, who was a track coach, as I said, was adamant that I wouldn't be, and he refused to have my ankle fused um, to help me walk. And I've led a pretty active life uh, up until this stage. Um, I would also say that my father, and this might be seem quite draconian to some, my father was adamant that I shouldn't get involved in disability sport. And the reason for that was that my parents believe, and I believe, that the world, unfortunately, is an able-bodied world. And because it's an able-bodied world, if you can integrate with the mainstream, you should do that. So all through um, my, you know, developing of my physical literacy, I was involved in soccer and played um, hockey and you know, various other sporting activities and was always in mainstream physical education. Um, that's in part because, you know, my impairment in on the spectrum of impairments is, is um, a little bit um, more minimal than others. We, we actively, or my parents actively resisted me being involved in parasport until I was a more autonomous individual. Until I, I started to get involved when I went first went to university. I'm just curious, and I, I know this is getting into like your personal and you know parents and all that. How did, I, I'm curious, how did your like father react to you going into the Paralympian kind of uh, aspect from that? And then what kind of yeah? I'm just I'm intrigued by that. He, he, he he was extremely supportive all the way through. Um, he he saw it as I did as an opportunity to travel the world and to experience different cultures and all these sorts of things. But he also felt that the experience in mainstream sport would um, his his brother his younger brother was a was a um, a teacher at and then vice principal at. Um, uh, school for the Blind in, in Brantford, Ontario. And so he was always actively suggesting that I get involved in disability sport. But my father was adamant that um, being involved in mainstream sport would, it would teach me humility. Would, would, you know, you get your butt kicked, you have to work hard to win and so on and so forth. Because certainly in those days, there weren't a lot of people involved in disability sport. So you'd be in races with one or two people. And um, it doesn't give you the sense of camaraderie necessarily that um, mainstream sporting opportunities do. So 
it wasn't that he was against disability sport. He was he was against um, seeing it as the only option. And so even now, if I was to tally up the the the, the races that I did, able-bodied versus um, you know um, para sport or CP sport races, I would say ninety-eight percent of the races I did were able-bodied races. And then moving forward, um, and, and you know, we've talked, especially recently, we've been talking a little bit more about this concept of ableism and so on. And I know that's a big focus of what your work has, has been focused on is ableism in physical activity settings. But just to continue to move on uh, in your career, and I know obviously you're a Paralympic athlete, which is probably a huge part of your career. How did that lead to your uh, focus in academia on all those things? I've, I've often referred to myself as an accidental academic. I wanted to run. I loved to run. I loved it. I loved when I was young to test myself against my own limits and push myself harder and harder. And in the winter time, at this time of year, if I were um, 20 to 25 years old, I would be have, be running 100 miles a week. Um, you know, in the gym, um, doing uh, various strength training routines three times a week. It's you know, 16 training sessions a week. I, I worked extremely hard, but one of the things I also wanted to do was I wanted to be a good son. I wanted to make, you know, do something that I really wanted to do, but also make my parents proud in the process. So when I went off to university, um, you know, the idea was that you go to university, then you get a job and basically sports finished and done and, and you, you grow up and, and you take a proper job and so on. I was so passionately um, engaged with sport um, as a participant that I decided to do um, a master's degree because I knew that if I was studying, my, my family wouldn't think it odd that I was still competing in sport. And then, you know, when I got my master's degree, I, I took a year off and I basically trained full time. I got a job in, in retail for four or five hours a day, five days a week, and I trained full time. And that was in the build up to the um, Barcelona Paralympic Games. Um, and in that process, um, I got injured. Um, badly injured. I partially ruptured my Achilles tendon. Um, the nature of my impairment meant that um, because it's the right side of my body running around a track puts a lot of stress on the outside of your body, which is the right side. And I'd already done my Achilles tendon a number of times as a result of my pursuit of running. I ruptured it again, but I, I was in a high performance sports medicine clinic at the University of Toronto um, and spent six months there rehabbing. And in the process of that rehabbing, I became interested in um, the social cultural Im impact of pain and injury in sport. And so um, after the Barcelona Games, I started a PhD at University College in London, England. In, the, in medical anthropology, 
where I was looking at sports medicine. I wasn't, you know, I was still a, a practicing athlete. Um, was passionate about Paralympic sport, but for two reasons, I chose not to focus my dissertation on Paralympic sport. The first reason was I didn't want to be all consumed with it. Um, I wanted to have a break from my running being my um, uh, studies. So I chose this topic. The other side of it was I also didn't want to be pigeonholed. I didn't want to be somebody who comes out with a PhD, who has a disability, who people say, well, there's that guy, David. He's got a disability. He's made a name for himself in disability sport because he was a former athlete. And so choosing this other route where I focused on um, professionalization of sports medicine in the context of rugby union in, in Wales and the UK, it gave me a different string to my bow. So I started out as an academic interested in pain and injury um, in, the, in the social cultural context of rugby union and got a bit of a name for myself, wrote a book about it, and then I sort of, the back end of that book, there are three case studies. There's the case study of the rugby union team that I focused my PhD research on. There's a case study of high performance runners. And then the third case study is parasport bodies. And from that moment, I was able to dovetail this, this interest in pain and injury, the medical systems, obviously, you know, there's, there's all sorts of discussions in APA circles about the models of disability, most notably the medical model versus the social model. And so I was really infused in that medical world. And I felt I owed it to um, my parents, as it were, because of the, the, the time and dedication they'd, they'd, um, uh, they'd, um, devoted to me to, to get me properly educated and so on. I have a, a sort of a moral compulsion to, to be a voice of many, um, within APA circles, within parasport circles, um, to, to blow up some of the myths around physical activity, disability, and sport. And talking about maybe myths, or, and I think that probably gets into that concept of ableism that permeates throughout the field of physical activity. From what I've seen, you know, you did a wonderful job of kind of calling out and focusing on how big of an issue that is throughout many of our circles, including, I think, sometimes when you're even thinking that we're doing more socially just and progressive uh, things in our work. Um, can you talk a little bit about that concept of ableism and way, how it manifests within physical activity in disability sports and able-bodied sports, or mainstream sports? Certainly. Um, the, the, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a caveat here, you know, all the thinking on ableism in sport and physical activity that I've done explicitly with ableism. I've used the notions before that, but within the last decade or so, all these ideas, you know, I haven't come up with an isolation. I've drawn on many scholars and I work in particular with um, Carla Filomena Silva is, is, is my um, main collaborator 
And so when I talk about ableism, when I talk about um, the the my understanding of it, it's it's not my understanding of it in isolation. It's an understanding that's developed in close um, working relationship with Carla, but also with other scholars in the field, and um, you know um, the the writings of um, uh, people like Dan Goodley and and so on and so forth. And you know, at the heart of ableism, it's 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 not unlike racism, really. Uh, ableism suggests that life without disability is more desirable and better than a life with disability. And this is deeply rooted and buried into the heart of, as Goodley would say, the heart of our ontological souls, the heart of our being that we see. And I'm not just saying the the able moral majority, I'm saying myself as well, because I'm a product of ableism. You know, there are, there are, there are certain things that exist in, um, the, the the context of what I see just because I've been a para para athlete doesn't mean that I am always on the right side of fighting anti able you know being an anti ableist. There are lots of times where I get it wrong. Um, ableism is harder to see than racism because it's not some you know racism by and large is written on the skin. And so you can see if somebody somebody is uh, marginalized by you know their their skin color or the 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 ethnic component of their name, for example. Um, whereas ableism, it, it, you can't see it, um, and it's a system of discri- discrimination that is really really hard to fight and. I guess the best way to talk about it is to think about um, the the infamous um, former Olympian and Paralympian um, Oscar Pistorius. You know, one of the things that in in 2004, when Oscar was first at the Paralympic Games, the question that I raised, and it's it's more a question for you know um, biomechan biomechanists might see that I'm wrong. I'm not a I'm not trained as a biomechanist. But I saw somebody uh, an ableist assumption was made that an athlete that required two prosthetic limbs, uh, Oscar for those who don't know, I'm sure everyone knows the, the good and the bad side of Oscar. But for those who don't know, he's a bilateral below the knee amputee and he was a four hundred meter at the Olympic and uh, Paralympic Games and when he first showed up in 2004 at the Paralympic Games he was competing against unilateral amputees and if you you know you google the video of Oscar Pistorius 2004 he was left standing in his blocks and he still won the race he is evenly balanced because he's got two um limbs made of carbon fiber, his ankles were exactly the same, and so on. The athletes that were unilateral, having one human leg, one artificial leg, were seen to be more able. That was an ableist assumption, that if you use artificial legs, you're going to be 
more disabled than somebody that doesn't. So if you've got more of them, you're you're going to be at a, a disadvantage. The technology proved that wrong. So you know, I I raised the question in in um, popular media and in um, in uh, written form at a later date. You know, should should Oscar be part of the Paralympic movement because there weren't enough athletes that were similarly um, impaired to him. And so that's a that's a classic example of um, ableist thinking, even within parasport. They've now corrected that. They've got different, they've got separate classifications for the bilateral and unilateral now because there are enough athletes for each class. But that's a that's a good way of thinking about ableism. And so, you know, and, and I agree, like, I, I feel that, especially in the last few years, and honestly, one of the things that benefits me so much is I, I get to have these conversations with people like yourself and Dr. Brett Smith and these one-on-one conversations that really help me professionally push my kind of thinking and such. Um, but obviously, I am not even whatsoever to ableist kind of notions and concepts that, um, yeah, again, we don't even always know that you're promoting, um, but, but you know, in your experience and in your work, is there any strategies that someone could take to try, attempt to try to combat those those uh, conceptions and attitudes within themselves and others? I think it's about, um, you know, and this is this is this is where there needs to be um, a degree, uh, increased agency from people who, who experience disability. They they need to. Um, where possible, where they're able to, to throw aside the um, the the sort of charitable mentality, and there need to be more role models in all walks of life for people um, who experience disability. So seeing other people um, be successful and so on is really really important. You know the the um, because we learn what's possible by, you know, seeing seeing other people achieve things, and one of the one of the interesting things that's that's out there is you know the the um, activist, comedian, political thinker um, Stella Young came up with this idea of inspirational porn. And for far too long, people who experience disability have been seen as somehow inspirational. And I would encourage anyone that's listening to this podcast who hasn't come across Stella Young, put Stella Young into um, you know a Google search engine, inspirational porn. And there's a lovely, it's about a 10 minute video. I use it, um, it's a TED talk. I use it in, in my classes on disability. And it's a really, really interesting way to think about the way in which, you know, people such as myself have been have been treated. You know, there's an assumption that in society that if you have a disability, you're a good person. That is not the case. And people who know me, you know, um, I'm a very straight talker. Um, people find me very, very harsh and rough. People either really dislike me or like me, but 
the the idea that somehow my disability makes me somehow a better person is an absurdity. And so this idea of inspirational porn draws on the fact that, you know, we aren't there for ins the inspiration of, of um, the able moral majority. We, we, we need to be people unto ourselves. We need to be doing our own thing. We need to be creating our own destiny. Now, one of the difficulties in, in, in that situation, and I'm hugely privileged, and I, and I had an extremely charmed life. I, I owe a great deal to my parents is, you know, the elephant in the corner is always class. If I had been working class and been born with my impairment, the chances of me being a professor at a research intensive university in Canada likely to be slim and none, and slim has just left the room. You know, it, the, my, the, the background of my parents strongly impacted on the fact that I'm here. And so it's not necessarily just my own abilities, but it's the the um, the background and opportunities that my parents provided for me. And obviously, not everyone with a disability is going to be in that situation. But it's really, really important that um, people stop seeing themselves and perceiving themselves as people who should be looked after, and take the world on be passionate about it and and be passionate about whatever it is you do. I love sports. So, you know, being in the, the para sports space, my own experience in it and so on has been really, really useful. The, you know, I want to see by the time I retire, I want to see more professionals in APA. I want to see more um, uh, professors in APA have firsthand experience of um, disability because if it was if if we were doing a podcast in women's studies, chances are at least one of us wouldn't be here, Scott. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, been a, a regular criticism, and one I take on is that the lack of dis disabled voices on this podcast. However, the reality is is they're not. There's two. Is one is they're not ample. Like you know, it's there's not a lot. And then the second aspect. And, you know, we've seen this with race and such in these professions is that at some point, you know, you're maybe over tapping those people too to be speaking on those same things and, and such, you know, somewhat tokenizing them. Um, almost kind of what you're saying is that I have to be the Paralympic guy or I have to be the disability sport person. Um, and, and with that, you know, I, I definitely see a, a great call to try to increase our professionals and practitioners, um, you know, with disabilities uh, as their identity and some of that they're advocating for. Um, but with that, you know, what are some strategies that we can do as a, as a profession, you know, in, in physical activity spaces to kind of, um, to uplift those voices and such? Because, you know, that's, I think it's, I, I totally agree with you. I think the actual to get there seems because I just I don't know how we recruit and how we uplift those voices and, and get them to those uh, you know those places. Um, I think that there's a there's a real sense that um, how, you know how do we confront um, ableism from within? 
so um, Carla, who I previously mentioned, did a, did a chapter in a book on researching disability, talking about confronting ableism from within. It, it, it's really, really difficult within the context of sport because, and, and to a lesser extent, physical activity, because sport is all about ability. You know, and and you you think of other ways of performing. You think of you think of um, singing in a in a choir. You think about dancing. You think, you know, all these things that are about somehow your body doing things. And you know, obviously, singing is not the same as as running, but it is using your body. You know, your vocal cords and so on and so forth. The the performance of the body is all about ability. And so we need to take a step back and reassess what ability means in specific contexts so that you're not comparing, um, you know, somebody who has, um, you know, is um, completely visually impaired, somebody who would be a um, T11 um, sprinter on the track, you're not comparing them to Usain Bolt or other great sprinters. You're comparing um, them with individuals who are similarly impaired. And that's the idea behind the Paralympic Games. But what happens is we look for the performances that stand out and say, you know, Oscar Pistorius, who I've previously talked about, his performances are greater than um, another Paralympian's performance because he was competing with Olympians on the same stage. And therefore, his ability is far greater. In real terms, it might be greater. But within the context of what he's doing, it may not be. I don't know the answer to that in terms of the field of um, the field of sport. Because, you know, there should be some way of thinking about um, sport in terms of performances, in terms of elite performances, should be about where where your body starts from and where it ends. So, you know, in an individual sport like track and field athletics, you can um, you can see perform progression of personal bests and so on. With team sports, it's slightly different, but um, it is a real fiddle to try to separate this notion of ability and ableism from the practice of, of sport. And so, you know, that's an ongoing um, tussle that I have in my own mind, that I have with in discussions with colleagues all the time. And to try and hammer out, you know, how can we organize sport differently so that um, people that are engaged in para-sport, people that are engaged in uh, sport at Special Olympics, people that are involved in the Deaf Olympics aren't compared to the mainstream able-bodied athletes where they're always seen as inferior. I, you know, in some ways, I think that that's you know, it's a struggle in our field, but also sometimes I think about that idea of sport and activity in general and disability, and it's almost like this like where two two kind of viewpoints meet, um, you know, around disability studies and such, and it, it I think it's kind of 
in some ways, although I, I agree with you, it's something I wrestle with in my head too. Um, in some ways, if we can, it's this great kind of thing to kind of conceptualize and think about to kind of push our thinking around ableism and disability studies, I think, as a whole, because it does kind of push these, um, you know, two, whatever, cultural and social kind of concepts that, um, I don't know, kind of come to a head together. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's kind of like exci an exciting topic in a way, too. Um, because it is, they are like diametrically opposed in some ways. Um, but we know that sport and physical activity is something that everyone should have the opportunity to participate in, in a meaningful way. And so how do we then combat these ableist kind of viewpoints in it? Well, I think physical activity, certainly. I think there's, you know, certainly there's a, there's a dialogue going on in, in Canada right now. And I think, uh, you know, certainly in the global north, at least, about these these issues of safe sport. And I've currently got a graduate student working on safe para sport, and there are lots of um, uh, worrying stories about you know um, inappropriate behavior by people in charge in in sport and so on that that we need to be wary of. Sport is not um, you know sport, but is not a perfect institution by any means. I think being, you know, giving people the opportunity to be physically active is really, really important. You know, I think that, you know, but progress has been made. When I first, when I first raised the idea of looking at, um, when I first raised the idea of, you know, really unpacking uh, disability sport, and this is before I started my PhD, um, I, I had a meeting with um, one of the founding fathers of what I would, you know, modern disability studies, um, a guy by the name of Mike Oliver. He's famous for politics of disablement. His classic text um, for, the re for the listeners, um, you know, popularized the notion of the social model versus the medical model from a very Gramscian um, way of, you know, seeing the world. And he, when I mentioned to him that, you know, I, I was an athlete and I was, was in early 90s, 92, 93, when I was first starting my PhD. And I said, you know, one of the, in, after my PhD, I think I want to focus on this and I want to focus on unpacking what's going on with the, with the Paralympic movement and so on and so forth. And he referred to me as an ableist puppet. Um, and I was shocked by that at the time. And I thought, well, I'm not a puppet for anyone. Um, but his view of sport and his, you know, the, the traditional view of disability studies is that body shouldn't matter. It's a political movement. We're all in this together and it's us against them. And so his understanding of the world were, was, <coughs> excuse me, and disability studies was somehow disembodied. And he saw he saw sport as the embodiment of the moving body. And that's the tension he had with it. Now he's, he's passed away subsequently, but the tension that he probably had with it is this notion of the moving body and ability. So in his way, he was putting, sort of putting me down as a, as a young man saying, that's not an area you should do research in. But he was, grappling with these ideas that we've just talked about, this idea that 
you know, the separation of ability in the body are extremely difficult to do. Yeah, absolutely. But they're also, you know, things that people enjoy and they're part of our, and sport is culture and sport is politics that we should all be. And I, I know that that's something that you're also, you know, arguing as well. I, I want to just, you know, go back to one of the topics that we briefly talked on, which is we briefly talked about tokenism and representation of uh, disabled voices and people in, in our field and such. I want, I do want to highlight that idea of tokenism. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could define that briefly and kind of discuss ways that tokenism is occurring in our field of physical activity and sport, and then maybe ways that we can try to prevent tokenism when we try to amplify voices of disabled persons. Okay. I think one of the, the things about um, tokenism is I, is I think it's about... Um, it's, it's tied with identity politics. It's tied with the early disability studies stuff. Um, um, Mike Oliver, Colin Barnes, the, these kinds of uh, scholars. Um, that where, where your identity was pretty much tied to, to your uh, impairment. And the, 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 the token side of it is that if, you know, if, someone such as myself as an academic is brought along because he has a disability and uh, given opportunities in, in the workplace because he is a disabled academic in the school or whatever. That is tokenism. If I am brought along for the other elements of my identity that in, a, in an intersectional way make me a worthwhile person for have, being on this committee and so on. The skills that are above and beyond that exist in me that um, are not tied to my impairment. Impairment is part of my identity. You know, I, I struggled, um, particularly before I, I got to university in, a, in, in social contexts and so on, and more so than I do now. Um, the struggle now is with my general dislike for the average person. Um, but in the past, it was that people thought that I was I was strange, and I was the, the you know the only um, for a large part of my time I was the only person with a disability in my mainstream schools, and so I was seen as marginal in, in those respects, and I didn't have a lot of friends when I was at school and and things like that um but my you know there's more that to me than my disability there's more i i've got more interests than you know disability sport and so on and so forth so if i am if i am pushed into an environment where um you know i'm i'm brought in to be the paralympian in the corner that talks about these issues um, I try to tend to avoid those situations where, you know, I, I do not um, and have never have, um, you know, been paid for doing after dinner inspirational speaking, for example. I refuse to do that because I don't, A, I don't think my story is particularly inspirational. 
um, most of the people that do these things and a lot of um, Paralympians currently, you know, they will, you will see on their blurbs, they'll say full-time Paralympian and inspirational speaker. Now, most of those people, a lot of them are not very good speakers at all. And that is tokenism. If you are put at the front of the room and not able, you're inspiring because you're there because you managed to, you know, put your clothes on the right way or whatever, then that is tokenism. If you're there because, and, and there are people that I know that, you know, former Paralympians that are absolutely exceptional speakers, really can, really have a charisma that, that, that transcends their time in sport and so on. And that's fantastic. But the number of Paralympians that highlight being inspirational speakers is tokenism. The fact that some of these people are paid as inspirational speakers and can't speak in public is worrying. And it starts to tar, um, it starts to paint Paralympians with the, with the same brush. And so we need to move away from that and see beyond the fact that, you know, that, David, in my case, I have an impairment and it affects the way I move slightly and so on and so forth. But I've also got a number of other qualities. And so if you're bringing that to the mix, then that's not necessarily tokenism. It might be the fact that I was a former Paralympian. That might be the reason that people were drawn to me or the stories that I tell or whatever. But if that's the only reason you want me in the room, I don't want to be there. And nobody that, you know, has a good sense of their own identity should want to be there either. Agreed. And I also would say it's it's a little surprising to me um, how often I still see those kind of practices, especially at conferences sometimes, um, where I've seen specific things where it's like, that seems like a really random person, except that they have a disability to be speaking at, at this event or something like that. Um, and I, yeah, and I, I yeah, I, I want to wrap up and I actually, I want to give you, do you want to talk about, and I might even edit this out. Do you want, do you want to talk about your future research or would you like to talk about um, the concept of moving away from the field of the APA? Well, I think the, the two are intertwined, so I'll try to intertwine them. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I think that, um, you know, there's a, there's a real sense that going, going forward, um, you know, the world in 50 years, I don't think adapt, uh, I would always push for adaptive rather than adapted. Um, and uh, I think uh, <coughs> one of the things that was um, articulated nicely um, in a paper that I had the opportunity to work with Donna Goodwin on, um, where we talked about the uh, adaptive rather than adapted um, in 2016. But I think the, you know, AP, adapted physical activity should, as a field should not exist because, you know, there, there is no such thing really. There, the idea of n normality is a myth. We're all on a spectrum of abilities, whether it be intellectual, physical, whatever it might be. And so what is, it, what no, is normal is a myth. And so to say that, you know, you, you have 
classes. You have classes to teach physical education, and then you have classes to teach adapted physical education. I think all physical education is adapted in some way. Not every child, not every, you know, every school um, child can um, long jump correctly the first time they do it. So if you're, if you're teaching long jump, whether you've got a prosthetic limb or whether you've got two human legs or whatever it might be, there's going to be an adaptation in the way that you teach a group of young children how to long jump. In every um, elementary school, uh, physical or primary school, depending on where you are in the world in, in terms of the terminology used, in schools for young children, teaching them how to move is, in a, is a process of adapting ideas that have been established, long established. And I think it is the sort of ableist assumption that um, there, there are people who can and can't do things that created the field of adapted physical activity. And so I would like to see it sort of broken down and be part of mainstream kinesiology and, you know, not seeing things like courses for special populations where all the disability stuff is taught. So, you know, I'm, I'm about to teach a, a course, Disability in the Moving Body, um, but until teaching this course, I have never really, um, at my the institutions where I'm full-time employed, I've never really taught a course on disability. Disability is just one of the intersections that you talk about in terms of talking about identity. And so it's highlighted as part of who people are, the ability to do things and the ability not to do them, um, and so on and so forth. And so research going forward, a lot of the, a lot of the things that we're um, thinking about is, is it, you know, trying to get to a world where, um, you know, difference is celebrated. To, you know, almost take the, almost take the focus off of things like parasport and um, high performance sport for people who, who experience disabilities, because we want to see more people who experience disabilities more physically active. And I don't think that parasport is necessarily the vehicle for that. The International Paralympic Committee is all about pushing, they say, for inclusion. But I think they're misguided in that um, the practice of the Paralympic Games is exclusionary. Only the most able bodies that fit within the classification system compete at the Paralympic Games. And so it's very exclusionary, and yet they're pushing for social inclusion. And so those two, you know, trying to get people to realize that those two things don't really meet up. And to get people with, um, you know, with different types of impairments to be more physically active, because I think, um, you know, moving the body is really, really important. So our, the research that I'm doing, and when I say our, I'm largely thinking of the research that I'm doing um, with Carla, and the, the agenda is to, you know, to celebrate differences in various sorts of ways. And if we do that, then fields like APA will start to question themselves. Say, do, do we need to have a, a special route through through this? 
for phys ed teachers or a phys ed teacher who comes out here that comes out of you know the university will be able to teach anyone physical education will be able to understand physical movement in the proper way to get ed- every individual to move properly um, for far too long in APA circles there has been a, a recipe approach to adapted physical activity here's a body type there's the image of the boy with um, cerebral palsy hemiplegia these are the things that boy can do and cannot do without really saying hey buddy what is it that you want to do like you've said the the this idea of options and we would we would advocate for um, you know the um, capabilities approach and um, Carla led on a paper um, um, on the capabilities approach in APA in 2012 and this idea that people should be free to choose what they want to do and you know in the practice of organized sport that becomes difficult because if everyone chooses something different there's not going to be any way of organizing competitions and so on and so forth but there needs to be much more choice for individuals than there currently is today jump in on two things one is so you know you referenced a little bit about physical education and i will say you know i grew up in detroit which is 10 minutes from windsor so i have a very unique uh u.s university experience because literally they would teach the classes and they would be like and in canada because a quarter of our students were actually from windsor uh, right it was interesting uh so i i had a little bit more so i know that the special education system in canada is not too dissimilar to the u.s but that you know adaptive physical education not maybe that adaptive physical activity but adaptive physical education is a necessity I would argue because of the special education system that exists and that special education system is a deficit model system and thus it to some degree necessitates for us to be deficit model and at least at the beginning level to even advocate for any additional attention to students Um, and what we find in physical education is that students have a really poor experience because the teachers are not properly trained um, around disability, and that does seem to be unique around disability, um, more than at least it seems to be really exemplified in that area, which I find to be, I don't know, interesting. Um, and it, to me, does call for there to be, and I, I, I do think that maybe in, even in adaptive physical activity, because we are often in kinesiology talking about the body, and disability is unique, at least to some degree, in how it affects body and movement. That, like, I'm pushing back a little bit. I think I see conceptually. I think somewhat you're talking about an infusion model around the curriculum that we would do around disability kinesiology moving forward. I do think that there's this. I I agree with you. I do think that there's this process of how like we're you know first off we're in all these political and deficit models of systems and structures that we're working in that often necessitate some of these things and then secondly we know that the practitioners coming out and the attitudes and so on and so forth are often so far behind it seems like such a leap 
to have a one class fit all or whatever it might be, or even the faculty teaching these classes to have the ability um, to teach those things accurately. Because I know, and I love my colleagues in my university, but um, I wouldn't trust most of them to be teaching on those concepts either at this point. And it just seems like a big leap. And I hear you 50 years from now, but even then, you know, especially with these, for adaptive physical education, we're working in special education, which is incredibly deficit-based. But at the end of the day, it's our only way to get additional services to kids that benefit from them. And so just some thoughts, I guess, on, on kind of like, I don't know, like how do we get there is kind of my my big question, but. Right, I well, I would, I would end, um... I would, for to to a large extent, I would in special education. I mean, the the whole notion of the concept of special. There is nothing special about being somebody who experiences disability. The whole the whole concept that's you know special education, and this is not an idea that you came up with. I'm not critiquing you, but this. The, the 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 concept of special is a product of ableism it is a marker that oh my goodness we feel sorry for these people how do we make them think that they are appreciated and understood and so on well we call them special and therefore they'll they'll perceive themselves as different than the hardships that they um, go through in, in those environments in special education and, and so on won't be so bad because they're they're the special ones. And I'm drawn back to to my experience growing up and being teased and bullied and beat you know beaten up and things like that. And Part of that, at least, was because of my disability. And my parents, in order for me to survive, told me that people were jealous of me. That was never the case. Nobody that I went to school with was ever jealous of me. That created a veneer on me. It strengthened me. It, until I realized that it was absurd, um, it made me stronger to the outside world. And I think we, you know, we need to, rather than, you know, creating these environments, these special educational environments, and I want to put a caveat in that. You know, if somebody has multiple disabilities and really high support needs, an intellectual disability and a physical disability, and you know multiple disabilities then there there should be a special educational environment for them and they should have one-to-one -one tutoring and so on and so forth but if you're somebody like me somebody with a functioning ability to walk around the world or somebody in a wheelchair and so on you should be mainstream schooled and i bet you any of the special educational environments you go to you will find bodies like mine even today in the USA, in Canada. And that is worrying because, you know, it, it, it creates a, 
um, a social bubble that isn't part of the mainstream. So that when you age out of these environments, you're not ready for the world. And some, some of the choices are made by the parents because, you know, the single mother working three jobs who has three other kids is putting their child in special education because they think that is the right thing for them. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a bad choice for them, but what I'm saying is the medical professionals, the people that are advising them, should be thinking more openly about socialization in a world that is able-bodied, in a world that, that um, you know, pushes people who are different back into the corner, back into boxes, and says, well, actually, this society isn't for you. And so all the politically, you know, the, the, the advocates that are out there, and I'm, I'm an advocate, some, you know, if pushed into a corner, I'm not the sort of person that's writing, you know, writing letters to my member of parliament and, and so on and so forth, advocating for the rights of people with disability. Um, but I'm trying, you know, my students who are largely able-bodied, taking social cultural courses with me in kinesiology, I'm trying to encourage them not to be that person that puts the barrier up for the person that's different in some way. And so, you know, the, the teaching and the research go hand in hand. It's about the one of the things about having um, graduate students is that you, you can help them explore ideas and push the boundaries of what's considered normal and acceptable today. And we can we can push back on this this notion that somehow somebody with a disability is special. Um, you know, and, you know. Other people on your podcast have talked about the significance and importance of language mattering. I think of Brett Smith's podcast um, that was eight or nine months ago in this series. He talked a lot about the significance and importance of language. And special is one of those words that we need to unpack and we need to say, hey, it's not acceptable anymore. I 100% agree with you. And I, you know, my little brother was um, in like self-contained classes in special education. He's quite a bit younger than me, but he's, you know, nearly 10 years removed from his high school experience. And he, when I saw him recently, referred to himself as a special education well out of that and the stigma of that that uh, thing. And, and I remember as a kid, my mom coming home crying and I think my brother was like, 10, 11, and they were telling him he would never be able to work at a fast food restaurant or whatever it was. It, the barriers that these um, deficit model kind of systems put and stigmas they put on is, is gross and it's widespread, especially in the U.S. Um, but, you know, especially in the U.S. where we're so massive, so politically divided, uh, and, and I don't think Canada is too dissimilar in some of that stuff especially in that realm, uh, to try to change those languages and try to see it, it feels, it feels like a mountain to climb those things um, and, and such. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, where we can have the, the biggest impact is um, within the classroom. Because, 
you know, the, the keen students um, will get it if it's delivered to them properly, that when you go into the working world, when you become a teacher, when you, when you become a professional of some sort, you know, you need to be mindful of the, the plethora of differences and, and the differences need to be celebrated that, that, you know, that society brings, brings to the fore. I mean, the, what you refer the, the 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 fact that you're referring to the special educational system as a as a deficit system already implies that there's so much to overcome in that system and so anyone that's listening you know if there are any parents that are listening to this it's really important that you do everything you possibly can to stop your um children from being in those environments if at all possible because you know life is tough enough if you're if you're if you're starting well if you know if you're starting well before the start line you're already behind the behind in the game it, it's even worse and so i think we need to we need to actively encourage um you know, all the young people that are in front of us, you know, in classrooms and so on, to 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 look at and break down the stigma associated with disability, going back to the um, Irving Goffman's idea of um, stigma and the management of spoiled identity, and try to get people to um, celebrate difference in movement and physical activity and so on. And we can do that in any numerous um, theoretical ways, and, and there's lots of literature out there. But you know, we one of the one of the big differences, U.S. and Canada and most of the other countries in the world, is that the U.S. has not signed the Charter for the Rights of People with Disabilities, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Okay. Um, because that charter lets people get away with um, all sorts of atrocities. Because that what that you do, if you read that charter, it is in, it is incumbent on the individual whose rights have been impeded to go to a lawyer and say, "This act is in place. Therefore, you have to make this building accessible." Most people, when confronted with that, are not going to go, go and lawyer up. And so, you know, I celebrate the fact that the U.S. hasn't signed that. I don't celebrate much about the U.S., to be honest. But the, the fact that they didn't sign that, I was, I was active in encouraging Canada not to sign it. I was active in encouraging the U.K. not to sign it because it places the, the burden on the individual who's been excluded. It's all well and good to talk about the policies we've got in place. But it's the practice on the ground that's really important. So it's not, you know, it's the, the, the microaggressions of ableism that, that are problematic as well. You know, it's the, the access to the building might be okay and so on, but when somebody wheels in in a wheelchair, you're talking to the person that's walking behind them rather than the person in the wheelchair. 
and the microaggressions that are associated with it. And these things impact on, you know, whether people feel comfortable going to the local gymnasium or whatever and, and these sorts of things. And I know we're probably getting well off topic and I hope you edit some of this out, but, um, you know, I think it's really, really important to, you know, push for that, that, that world where um, diversity, difference is celebrated. Thank you, Dr. Howe. It has been a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. Um, I think that we had some really great ideas kind of uh, talked about, and I hope it sparks some good conversation outside of the podcast, too. Thank you very much for having me. And um, yes, um, feel free, anyone that listens to this, to, to contact me to discuss any of these issues.